Well, I'm going to preach a very comforting message to us today. This comforting message begins with the reality that the people of God will suffer incredible persecution. The reality that God has said that not only has it been given unto us as a gift from God to believe in Him, but also to suffer for the sake of Jesus. The reality that we will stand in direct opposition to evil forces in this world and that we will be persecuted by simply standing for Jesus and testimony to who He is. We don't have to go out of our way as Christians, to try and get people to despise or to hate us or to oppose us. All we have to do is proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. All we have to do is live according to a biblical worldview. And the reality is that throughout the ages that many, many Christians have shed their blood in faithfulness to Christ because Christ shed His blood in faithfulness to His Father so that we can be made right with God. So it's it's a comforting message that we're going to face persecution. We've been looking at a few messages from the book of Revelation. And I will say today some of the things that I mention are going to be things that are going to lead to more questions in your minds, perhaps. And I hope to answer some of those questions by the grace of God in the months ahead. I'll be absent from the pulpit for about two weeks and Brother Rick will be preaching for us, but then... With the Lord's help, we'll look at several more messages. So if I don't answer your question today, or if I don't support something fully, but make a statement, realize that we'll probably be looking at that in more detail. But I'm coming from the perspective, as I view the book of Revelation, that the people of God will go through tribulation. This has been the position in the church for 2,000 years. The majority of biblical... Believers throughout the ages have believed that the church, Christ's people, will not be secretly raptured out before the great tribulation, but that Christ's people will go through tribulation. And what we're going to look at today in particular, though, and this is where the comforting part is going to come in in some respect, okay? We're going to look at what has been called the mark of the beast and is called that in the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast. And it'll require a little bit of background information as we go. But, you know, if people don't know much about the Bible, they still usually have a little bit of an idea of the mark of the beast and the number that's associated with that mark. Right. You probably all know what that is. Uh, How many of you would like to get issued a license plate and it had the number 666 on it. You'd be like, no, I don't even know if they'll issue that license plate. Mandy says, my wife is shaking her head. Yes, so she's seen it. Okay, so they will. But you'd be like, oh, whoa, no, no, no. The mark of the beast. I don't want that license plate. I don't want people seeing that and associating that with me. Well, it's this number and it's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Well, there are lots of views and have been throughout history about what that mark is and how that mark is going to manifest itself in history. Ideas such as this. I just did a Google search on it in my preparation. And here's a website. And it says 666 proof the social security number is the mark of the beast as foretold in the book of Revelations of the Bible. And I quote, the number 666 is well known to be associated with the number of the beast. The Bible puts it this way. In Revelation 13, 17, the name of the beast or the number of its name, they say there is no doubt that the social security network is, or the number is the mark because of the first part of 13, 17, so that no one could buy or sell unless they had the mark. They continue. Now think about what that says and what it means. To buy or sell is just another way of saying financial transaction, isn't it? That certainly includes earning a living, getting a job, but it's also every financial transaction you make. How are the most... Most of those transactions facilitated today via credit or debit card. Try to get either of these without a social security number. See how far you get. So where is the 666? It's public information. And here's what they say. that The United States government's full list of laws are called the United States Code. If you go to Title 42, United States Code Section 666, guess what you will find? 
You will find where the social security number is now mandated on all licenses, they say. And here it is. So there's the 666 and there's all the connection. Well, where the comforting part is going to come in today is that as we look at the scriptures and look at Revelation, I want everybody to breathe a sigh of relief in advance. If you've got a social security number, you have not taken the mark of the beast. And I'm going to, I'm going to prove that to you from the scriptures today, okay? But... All of these ideas, and you know, it was barcodes. I remember as a teenager, you know, it's barcodes, barcodes, mark of the beast, you know. And now, what is it? The big one, RFID chips, right? And they've got these little chips, and oh, in Wisconsin, you know, employers are talking about putting these chips in people. It's mark of the beast. Now, I will say, I don't want any chip in me, okay? Just privacy, you know, that kind of stuff. I don't want a chip in me. But, rest assured, again, not the mark of the beast will not be the mark of the beast, okay? And we're going to look at that today. So what we need to do if we want to figure out what the scriptures are truly teaching is we need to look to the scriptures and look to them in detail. And so let's do that. First of all, remember, as we've been looking at the book of Revelation, Revelation is in a genre of literature, and it's called apocalyptic literature. We have examples in the Bible of apocalyptic literature. We're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 9 in just a moment. So even sections in the Bible take that form of apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is characterized by visions. It's characterized by angels as the ones who are instructing the prophet or the seer. It is, it is characterized by highly symbolic and figurative images and visions and pictures. Okay? There are Jewish writings which still exist today from the Apocrypha that the entire writings are in this form of apocalyptic lit- literature such as uh, Second Estrus and Baruch. And... It was a genre of literature which was familiar to the original readers of the book of Revelation, but not so much to us today. You know, we kind of read it and think, well, it's, maybe it's a little like science fiction. I don't know. D.A. Carson talked about uh, a friend of his who would pass out New Testaments at college, and I think it was over in England. He gave New Testament to uh, a young college student who had never read the Bible and said, now I'm going to give this to you, but you've got to read it. And so this college professor gave it to this student, and the student later on uh, was walking by, and he said, hey, have you read that book that I gave you? And the the guy was like, yeah, yeah. He said it was really interesting. You know, he said, uh, and this is New Testament, mind you, he says it was uh, really repetitive at the beginning where basically you had the the same four stories told over and over again. He said, but I really like the science fiction at the end. So, you see, he was trying to connect the book of Revelation to a genre of literature that he was familiar with. We need to recognize it was familiar to the original Jewish audience, and so we need to look at it from that perspective, not from our 21st century Western perspective, okay? So as we do... And we consider the mark that we're going to see. I want to point out to us that the book of Revelation is a book of contrasts. Apocalyptic literature also has a battle between darkness and light, between good and evil. And there will be symbols that represent the dark and the light. Revelation is a tale of two cities. You have the city of Jerusalem and you have Babylon. Revelation is a tale of two beasts, if you will. One beast is the dragon who is evil and the other is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, our Redeemer. Revelation is the tale of two peoples, the people of God and those who bear his mark and the people of the dragon and the beast, his servant, who bear the mark of the evil one. You see this in Revelation throughout, all of these contrasts. 
And so, what we're going to see today from the book of Revelation is that all people bear a mark. You right now bear a mark. You are marked right now as God's or as Satan's right now. Right now. All people bear a mark. I'm not excluding the possibility that somewhere down the road, and again, I said I may not answer all of our questions today, that somewhere down the road, there might be a, at one point in time, a antichrist who rises up and that there might not be specific intensified persecutions as outlined in the book of Revelation. But as we look at these marks, the book of Revelation presents two people bearing two different marks. And I think we can see that these refer to all people, the people of God and otherwise. So let's let's consider this for a moment. Look to Revelation 13 and the, the question where or the passage where we uh, see the mark of the beast specifically mentioned. We'll begin with verse 1, and I'll read through this somewhat quickly for us. Revelation 13 and verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his ten horns and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months, and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world." If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he is granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who, who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause it as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is six, six, six. Now, I'm just going to summarize some details of what I think about these beasts, and we'll probably in a future message examine that in detail, and I'll give you more of my reasons for it, but we're going to focus in particular on this mark today, okay? In summary, I agree with those like William Hendrickson and his uh, commentary, More Than Conquerors, on the book of Revelation, that one, of course, the dragon which is seen in chapter 12 and which fell from heaven and makes war against the people of God is Satan himself. This first beast, who is a servant of the dragon and rises up out of the sea, represents organized 
persecution and oppression against the peoples of God. And this often comes through governments that oppose the people of God. In the, in the time that John was writing this, that was clearly the Roman Empire that was persecuting the saints. Okay? The second beast that rises up from the earth and is called the false prophet in Revelation 16 and it says has two horns like a lamb but speaks like a dragon represents religious deception by Satan throughout the ages. Part of this religious deception is described as described here is making an image of the beast and calling people to worship this image. That, in its purest form, is idolatry. It's idolatry. It's religious deceptions, false prophets who lead the people of God to worship other than God through deception. And then, as part of that, there is economic pressure put upon the people of God that if they do not engage in idolatry, that they will be persecuted and not be able to buy and sell and all of these things. Did that happen in the first century with the very people to whom John was writing to? Absolutely. The Roman Empire was a pagan society. They had trade guilds. So if you were a stonemason, for instance, you were to get work, you almost were required to be a part of their trade guilds, but in these trade guilds, they had patron gods and goddesses, and you were supposed to burn incense to these gods or goddesses who in turn were supposed to help your business, you know, and increase your business. But if Christians refused to do that because that was clearly idolatry to offer these things to false gods, then they would be excluded and that it would be hard for them to find work. So you see, there are examples of this very thing that this symbolizes happening in the Roman Empire in the first century. And it has been the case throughout the ages that Christians who take a stand and will not engage in idolatry or will not bow to the state when the state tells us to abandon our faith or to closet our faith, that we've been excluded. And we even see instances of that in our own culture where people who will stand on their principles and based on their conscience refuse to print t-shirts for gay pride events or um, bake cakes for gay weddings or do flower arrangements for gay marriages. And the government has even stepped in and tried to prosecute and fine and shut that down. A small example in our case, in our nation, most of us haven't faced that experience, but throughout the ages, this has been taking place. As we then consider this mark, we need to realize again that there are two different groups of people described in the book of Revelation. One group of people is marked with the mark of God. Look back to Revelation chapter 7. Chapter 7. This is in the midst of the seals being unbroken. Remember I preached that the Lamb was worthy to go up and take the scroll from the hand of Him who sat on the throne. And then the Lamb begins to unloose these seals. And as He unlooses these seals, and the Lamb is Christ, various hardships begin to come upon the world. There's conquering that takes place, conflict, scarcity, death, cosmic disturbances, multiple things that began to take place as these seals are unsealed. In chapter 7 then, this is after the sixth seal, before the seventh seal is unsealed, in verse 1 it says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the sea, or the earth on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, 
Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till, notice this, we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So you see, this seal is going to be on the foreheads of the servants of God. And this seal provides a measure of protection from the seventh um, disturbance that, that takes place on the earth, okay? And then it goes on to mention the 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Again, I, I don't have time to preach on that whole thing, but think about this. The numbers in the book of Revelation, highly figurative, 144,000, 12 times 12 times 1,000. The number 12, significant, representing the people of God. You had the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 patriarchs. You have the 12 apostles chosen. I believe the 144,000 here is symbolic of all of the people's of God. The church in the scriptures is called the Israel of God in the New Testament scriptures. In Hebrews chapter 8, God says he would make a new covenant with the house of Judah and Israel after that day. And clearly, we are in that new covenant era. And the scriptures say that the Gentiles are brought in and they are made heirs of the promises with Abraham, Genesis chapter 3. So I believe that this is referring to the people of God, not a generation of Jews in the future after the church has been raptured out. Again, I don't have time to support that fully. We'll probably look at that in another sermon. But notice, sealed on their foreheads. Now, you jump to chapter 9. As the trumpets are now sounding... In chapter 9, the fifth angel sounds, verse 1, And I saw a, fall, a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing, or notice this, any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So you notice here, over the face of the earth, there are those who have the seal of God on their foreheads and those who do not. Two categories of people. Okay? The picture that I think unfolds in the book of Revelation is you have God's people who are sealed, and it says later in the book that they have the name of God written on their foreheads, and then you have those that are not God's people who have taken the mark of the beast. Okay? Now, look over to Revelation chapter 14. We've read from chapter 13. In chapter 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, this is in contrast to chapter 13 and those who take the mark of the beast. So you see these beasts rising up and you see all of this. And then chapter 14, it's like, boom, here's the lamb and his people. You see? And I heard a loud voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And, and it goes on to describe these people. You know, again, the book of Revelation is written to people who are enduring suffering and oppression for the glory of God. And it's written to teach them, to overcome, to tell them things are not as they seem. God is in control. You look around you in this world and you see darkness and you see evil taking place. But God is sovereign. He is in control. And we win. We win as the people of God because we are on the side of the Lamb. What happens to those that are marked with the mark of the beast? Verse 9 of chapter 14, a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. 
He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Right now, if we did lean towards thinking that the mark of the beast is a social security number and you're sitting here with a social security number, you're going to start getting a little bit nervous. Right? What happens to those who have the mark? They face the wrath of the Lamb. What happens to those who are sealed on, the fo- on their foreheads with the mark of God? They face the wrath of the dragon. Because it says he causes all to be killed who do not receive this mark. Whose wrath would you rather face? Just let me ask that question real quickly. <laughs> Would you rather face the wrath of a defeated foe who can cause you hardship and pain in this life, which is like a vapor, it's here and it's gone, just like that, and if you are united in Christ, eternal glory, worshiping Jesus for all eternity, or would you rather face the wrath of him who, after he has killed the body, can destroy the soul in hell? You know, really, when it comes down to it, it's a (laughs) no-brainer. It's it's just that people who don't believe in Jesus, it's because, besides the reality, they're unregenerate, they're depraved, and they cannot understand the things of God. At the subjective level, it's because they just really don't believe. They really don't believe it. You know, there'll be people who say, yeah, I'm going to go to hell and I'm going to party it up in hell. They don't have a clue about hell. They don't realize that hell is facing the unmitigated wrath of God. They don't have a clue. They're ignorant and that's why they they can say that. If they really knew what the wrath of God was going to be like, they would think a little about it a little bit differently, but here's the reality too. And I could get preaching on this, but I believe as you look at the scriptures, it's not that people end up in hell and being tormented consciously day and night, and then they repent and say, oh, if only I could get out of here. The scriptures present that they are there, and yet they still hate God and gnash their teeth against God. Do we need to give the gospel to people? This should drive us to preach the gospel. The very, the very thought of people suffering in such a way and facing God's wrath should drive us out of love and compassion toward others to give the gospel to them. Because all who believe in the name of Jesus will be saved. I want, you, I want you to notice something significant here in a couple of verses I just read. Notice in verse 9 of chapter 14, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark. Verse 11, who, who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Chapter 16, verse 2. A loathsome sore came upon those who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. What we see here is receiving the the mark and worshipping this false image go hand in hand. Those who receive the mark also worship the image. Okay? So as as I begin to conclude some of these things, I'll give one of my conclusions in advance and we'll cover it again. The mark of the beast is not something that you could inadvertently receive or be given. In its very nature or essence, only those who are willing to bow to the beast, the image of the beast and worship in idolatry, are those who will receive the mark. So it can't be a social security number. Parents assign that to children and they have that 
up until they reach the age of 18 before they can make any decision about whether they want to keep it or not. You're not going to find 18 as an age of accountability in the scriptures, I'm sorry. Um, But the reality is that it cannot be something inadvertently receivable. So, if I get in an accident, I'm knocked out, I'm in the emergency room, and they insert a little RFID chip into my right arm, and I have no idea it's there, that it cannot possibly be the mark of the beast. Those who worship the image of the beast and receive his mark, and then they face the wrath of the Lamb. It's also impossible for a child of God to receive the mark, because a child of God will never face the wrath of God. Giving you some of my conclusions in advance. But are you seeing this picture? I've read verses here that speak about those who are marked by God and have his name, and those who bear the mark of the beast. In Revelation chapter 21, it gives characteristics of the group of people who um, bear this mark and whatnot. It gives both sides in verse 7, 21, 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, John says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. You see there, the worshipping, in this case, those who had not worshipped and not received, and they're the ones who are living and reigning with Christ. Okay? Very clearly here, two peoples, two groups of people, and I believe this is speaking about all people, Combine it into these two different groups. Well, I mentioned Ezekiel chapter 9. Do we have any precedent in Scripture for a figurative or symbolic marking of the people of God? Okay? Because in, in some camps, and, and I again, I, I disagree with this, and I respect where people are coming from who have a different opinion on some of these details, okay, we're within the same Christian camp. But some people say, well, we've got to read this literally. So literally, there's going to be this 144,000 people from the Jewish tribes, they'll say, and literally, they're going to get some type of tattoo where they have the name of God tattooed across their forehead. And then they'll say of the mark of the beast, well, we have to take this literally. So literally, there's going to be something that's going to be marked in the forehead or on the right hand. But I'm asking now, do we have any biblical precedent for a figurative mark? And is Revelation referring back to something in Scripture that the original uh, hearers and readers would have been very familiar with? And I believe the answer is yes, and it was something clearly figurative. So Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel is... In captivity at the moment with a group of Jews on the bank of the river uh, Chebar. And there are some Jews who are still in Jerusalem. And God is revealing to Ezekiel in a vision here some of the things that are going on in Jerusalem with idolatry and false worship. Okay? So we need to realize as we read chapter 9 that Ezekiel here is having a vision from God. This is not something that is literally taking place, okay? He is seeing this as the seer. Chapter 9, Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. So the Lord has taken 
Ezekiel, in chapter 8, and I'll jump back there for just a moment, in verse 1, it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. Then I looked, and there was a likeness like the appearance of fire from the appearance of his waist and downward. Fire and from his waist and upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand, took me by a lock of my hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me, notice this, in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was that provokes the jealousy. So this is clearly a, a vision that God has given him. And in this vision, he said, it's like he grabbed me by my hair and pulled me up between heaven and earth. And there I am. But it's a vision. He says it's a vision. And he has a vision of what's going on in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, what he sees are many abominations. Son of man, verse 5, now lift your eyes to the north. I lifted my eyes to the north, and there north of the altar gate was the image of jealousy in the entrance. And he said, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Turn again, you will see greater abominations. He brought me to the door of the court. When I looked, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of man, dig into the wall. This is a vision. He's not really in Jerusalem doing this. He's already said it's a vision. Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they're doing there. So I went in and saw every sort of creeping thing, abominable beast, all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. And in their midst stood... uh, Jeanizeth, the son of Shephan, each man had a censer in his hand and a thick cloud of incense. They're worshiping false gods inside the very temple. That's the vision that he is showing Ezekiel here. And he says in verse 13, Turn again, and you'll see greater abominations. He brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay women were sitting weeping for Tamas, false gods. And so he's showing them all of these things. And then we get to verse 9. And this is still in this same vision. He called out in my hearing with a loud voice, chapter 9, verse 1, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. It's a vision, again, remember. Now the glory of the Lord of Israel had gone up from the cherub, and he called, I'm skipping through a little bit for the sake of time, called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side, and the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others he said, in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark. Again, this is in a vision. Is this a literal mark? No, it's not. It is symbolic of whom? Of those who weep over the sins of the city. It is symbolic. And it is saying that all those who are not worshiping the Lord and repenting of sin will face the wrath of God. It is symbolic. And so, do we have precedence in the scripture for a symbolic mark on the forehead designating the people of God as his? Yes. And you know what? There's no kind of infrared light or whatever else that you could shine on your forehead if you're a Christian and see that. It is simply a symbol saying there are those and God knows who are his. He knows those who are his. And those who are his are characterized by godliness. In Ezekiel here, it is those who were weeping and mourning because... The rest of Israel were worshiping false gods and idols. And so they weren't just saying, oh, well, that's their private opinion. You know, as long as they're not hurting anybody and keeping it to themselves, it's okay. You know, and they can do that. 
They're not saying, oh, oh no, this isn't a matter for the public square, you know. Whatever you do in private, fine, just keep your religion to yourself. No, they're weeping and grieving and mourning over the wickedness and idolatry. Do you bear the mark of God? Are you grieved when you look around you and you see evil and wickedness in the land? Do you weep and mourn when you hear examples even of entire denominations who bow to the beast and are deceived by the false prophet? Entire denominations who will say things like, a woman has a right to choose. And so that little one in her womb, it's her prerogative for her best interests so that she can fulfill her career, so she cannot be economically hindered. Do you weep and mourn? That the United States of America has murdered with the sanction of law over 40 million of the most innocent and helpless in our midst? It's an abomination to God. It's horrific. We have these two groups of people, these two marks. Again, a precedent here in the book of Ezekiel. Revelation over 500 times alludes to Old Testament passages such as Ezekiel. Chapter 14, which talks about those that are marked with the name of God on their foreheads and the judgment that comes upon those who bear the mark of the beast. Then the next chapter goes into a description of a little book that John is told to eat. And Ezekiel was given a scroll, and God said to eat it. I mean, alluding even back to Ezekiel in that same context. So, well, what about, what about, right quickly, the 666? What about 666? It is the case that in uh, many ancient languages, they didn't have... uh, they didn't have numerals. They didn't have digits like we have. You know, we, we write out four, five, six. You know, we know that that's four, five, six and not, you know, A, B, C, D or whatever. So they would use number or um, numbers sometimes to represent letters or they would use letters to represent numbers. You know, you think about, you think about Roman numerals, right? They didn't have, the, they didn't have, five and zero and write it that way, you know, so they would do, what is it, L for 50 Roman numerals, am I right? Okay, I see heads nodding, thank you guys. But you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying there. So some have looked at this and said, well, this is an example of this, of, it's called gematria. In this case, using numbers to designate letters says the number of a man, his number is 666. Well, you know what? No matter what camp of eschatology you fall into, and I've listened to various messages through the week, read various commentaries, um, most of the credible scholars in all of these camps will say, we have no idea. The name specifically that this refers to. The reason being that depending on what language you use, you can come up with all kinds of names that match 666. The reason being when you add up the value of the various letters in a name, you could have multiple names even in the same language which would equal 666, 666. So there there are many, many different opinions on this. What I've concluded is if anybody's absolutely dogmatic about it, that they're not thinking reasonably about it, quite frankly, because there's so many variations. And one commentator, uh, Beale, said, uh, here's the formula to make the number 666 fit whomever you want it to fit. He says, first of all, change 
Or first of all, he said, number one, if the person that you're trying to make fit the number 666 doesn't have a title, go ahead and give him one. Add his title in there. So some have, some have said the 666 is Nero, and the way that they get that, though, is they have to make it Nero Caesar. They have to add the title. And then they have to transliterate the, his Latin name into Hebrew, and then they have to fudge the spelling a little bit <laughs> to get it. So it's kind of, well, it, it, I, I'm kind of like, I, uh, I don't know. That just doesn't work for me. Um, so he said, if you want to make it fit somebody, you know, and what, I mean, like even Henry Kissinger in recent history, people are saying, you know, his name spells 666. If, if, you, if you want to make it fit somebody, first of all, if they don't have a title, make sure and get a title in there. Secondly, um, go ahead and change the language. So if their name is actually originally recorded in Latin, make it Hebrew. If it's in Greek, make it Latin, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And thirdly, just don't get particular with the spelling. And, uh, and you can make it work. Well, when it, when it comes down to it, it seems that perhaps there was someone to the original readers, and when they heard this, his name is 666, that they, they would have recognized him. But even looking at writings in the second century, even in the second century, the early church fathers are saying, we don't, we don't know who this is. And so we just have to exercise a little humility here, Okay. One thing I think, I think, and I'm going to exercise a little humility and not be too dogmatic about this. The number, notice it's 666. What's the number of completion or perfection? Seven. Seven. How many persons of the Godhead? Three. How many persons here are mentioned in this evil triumvirate, this evil trinity, if you will? There's the dragon the beast, and the false prophet. 666 is one short of, six is one short of seven. So, possibly, possibly, this is talking about representing that incompleteness and it's talking about representing um, um, evil as displayed by these, by these creatures falling short but, again, I, I'm not super dogmatic about that. What are some of the things that happen here to those who refuse to take the mark? Notice there was economic hardship, not being able to buy or sell trade, persecution, they're killed, and then there's this false prophet, and he's trying to deceive, okay? At the very least, even even if we end up disagreeing about whether or not there are going to be there will be an, the a specific person rise up, you know, who's the beast, and he's often associated with uh, Antichrist, or he's called the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Even if we end up disagreeing about whether or not this is referring to evil oppressions against the people of God and evil deceptions toward the people of God throughout the ages, which is what I would hold to, or that there's going to be a specific point in time where literally you have people rise up representing these things. At the very least, we should recognize that at the broadest level of principle, that Christians have and do face this type of persecution. And that Christians have and do face those that are trying to deceive them and who are false prophets, and that we should not give in to such persecution, cave in and commit idolatry, abandon Christ and worship false gods, or whatever it may be, as a result of that. So our character is to stand strong in the midst of persecution and oppression. As we're thinking about this mark. Here's a point where I want you to be encouraged, okay? I already mentioned, I don't believe you can inadvertently take this. Why? Because it says those who worshipped and received, those who worshipped and received, those who worshipped and received. You have to be able to worship, and this represents those who give in and just worship false, 
false gods, whatever form that might take. And in the scriptures, Colossians in chapter 1, it says, or 3, that covetousness is idolatry. The very heart of idolatry is desiring unlawful things according to the law of God. The very heart of idolatry is God says, no, that's not for you. And you say, yes, that's mine. I want that. That's idolatry. And so we can be idolaters and worship falsely in many different ways. We can worship our reputations. We can worship money and possessions. We can worship our families and children. We can worship a hobby or an occupation. We are creatures of worship. John Calvin put it this way. He says, we're we're idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories. We can pump out idols left and right. (laughs) We got to be on guard constantly and asking ourselves, am I worshiping the true God? How do you know if you're worshiping the true God compared to worshiping idols when we can make idols out of anything? The question is, If you are willing to elevate anything to the level of, I will sin to get it or sin if I don't get it, then you've made it an idol. If we elevate anything to the level of, I will sin to get this or sin if I don't get it, we've made it an idol. And it could be a good thing in and of itself. We could say, take safety. We could say, I want to be safe. But am I willing to sin, not give the gospel to because I'm fearful of what they're going to do to me, the unbeliever over here, in order to maintain my safety? You see, you made your safety an idol, right? Our material possessions. God says he's given us all things richly to enjoy. Jesus says use money to make friends. What does he mean by that? So that you can help them to see the tr- value of true riches. Not because you are like want fair weather friends, but you truly want to help people, right? Jesus says to do these things, but how do you know if, you may, if you're making money an idol? Jesus said if you're worrying about your finances. If you're worrying about it, if you're anxious about it, not trusting God about it. At that point, it's become an idol, right? So we can make anything an idol, but the good thing is we can't inadvertently take the mark because it involves directly worshiping that which God forbids us to worship. Furthermore, a child of God will not take the mark and worship the beast and the image, for he has the mark of God, and the scriptures say, is written in the Lamb's book of life. Written in the Lamb's book of life. So, unless you wrongly believe that a child of God can lose their salvation, but the scriptures teach against that, Jesus said, no one can pluck them out of my Father's hand or my hand. The scriptures teach that those that God foreknew He predestined, and ultimately they are glorified. There's no break in that chain. Those who have the mark are those that worship the beast. They are not written in the book of life, and they will face the wrath of God. So if you're a child of God, you don't have to worry about this. You need to stay wary and not be deceived. But it's not something that we should just be wringing our hands over and, oh no, RFID chips, and is it the mark of the beast, and am I going to take the mark of the beast? I'm a little bit concerned about RFID chips and, you know, employers and the government eventually saying everybody's got to get one of these so we can track you and know where you're at and what you're doing at all times. Yeah, I'm concerned about that. Just look at totalitarian regimes throughout history and what has happened and, you know, persecution and oppression. Um, but not the mark of the beast. Don't worry about it in that respect. Furthermore, I want to encourage you, folks, we don't need specialized knowledge to avoid following antichrists. 
You don't, you don't need specialized knowledge. You don't, have to, you don't have to be in the inner circle or the upper echelon in order to not be deceived by antichrists. But you've got to know the gospel. You've got to know the fundamentals of the faith. If you, if you don't know, if, if you don't have a clue what justification is or how justification takes place, then you need to learn. We preached on that. <laughs> if you believe that a person, if, if you're open to the idea that somebody could be justified before God based on works that they do, then you're in trouble. Know the fundamentals of the faith. Study them. Some of the uh, old confessions of faith are fantastic just to read through and study. Catechisms are fantastic. Read the scripture proofs. Don't just read the words of men. Go to the scriptures themselves. But we need to know the fundamentals of the faith so as not to be deceived. And here's another one that I threw in here. When I was a little, a little kid, for whatever reason... I guess it was probably after I watched the old movie A Thief in the Night, you know. <laughs> um, I, I somehow started to get afraid that, one, I would either believe in someone who said they were Jesus and they weren't, or Jesus would come and I would miss him. Well, to the point I just made, if you know sound doctrine you're not going to be deceived. If you're one of God's elect, praise God, you won't be deceived. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, if it were possible, the elect be deceived. Okay? But then here, here's another thing, you know, oh, but what if, I, what if I miss Jesus? What if he's really there? What if it's really him and I'm suspicious? And I, Here's the reality, folks. The way the scriptures describe the return of Christ, nobody is going to miss it. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You will not miss Jesus when he comes. First Thessalonians. And let's look at verse 13 of chapter 4. He says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That's speaking about those who have died. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Now notice this, describing the second coming of Christ. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. The Lord's shouting, you think we're going to miss that? With a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. We're not going to miss him. <laughs> We're not going to miss him. Jesus said that he knows his sheep and his sheep hear his voice and follow him. We're not going to miss him. We're not going to miss him. Take comfort. Take comfort. But we need to be those who are characterized by the mark of God. We, we need to be those who weep over sin in this world. We need to be those who are repenting of sin. We need to be those who are, as it mentioned in Revelation chapter 14, maintaining sexual purity and not being deceivers and liars. We need to make sure that we're not joining in with the ways of the world, as it mentions of those who are going to ultimately, ultimately be punished. Um, back in Revelation 21... Revelation 21. 
And I do think it's significant in the symbolism, and I do believe the marks are symbolic. Where is the mark? Forehead and right hand. Forehead symbolizes our thoughts, our beliefs. Hand symbolizes our actions, our deeds. The ungodly are characterized by wicked thoughts, sinful thoughts, or deception, and characterized by ungodly deeds. See this symbolism there? What are some of the characteristics of those who are lost and therefore we should strive against this ourselves? Revelation 21 Oh, just an encouraging thing. Start with verse 6. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. Notice that. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Notice that cowards, cowards, those who under threat of persecution, whether it be economic sanctions against their business or whatever else, cave in and violate their consciences so that they can keep their money, Cowards, unbelieving, not truly believing in God, abominable, engaged in all types of wicked practices, murderers. And Jesus says if we murder, if we hate somebody in our heart, we've committed murder. If you live with an attitude of hatred towards somebody and desiring vengeance against them. I had a man who had attended our church for several years It was reported to me on his deathbed that a friend of his pleaded with him to forgive one of his sons and he refused to do that on his deathbed. This man once told me, I was in his home and he said, if you ever, if you ever wrong me, that's it. I have no reason to think that that man will not burn in the lake of fire. He came to church, he professed the Lord, but he said, I hate people and I cannot forgive. Jesus said, if you do not forgive men, my Father in heaven will not forgive you. You see all these things? We are not to be characterized by this. This is what those who are evil are characterized by. We are to be characterized by righteousness. Marked by righteousness. For the glory of God. And for the Lamb. So, I do hope this is encouraging to you in some respect. I really do think that, you know, some of the folks that have written six and seven hundred page books on 666 and the mark of the beast and why it could be RFID chips and all that kind of thing, I, I really think they're wasting their time to be focused on it that much. Remember, Revelation is not a puzzle book, it's a picture book. The big picture is two peoples. Two peoples. One characterized by godliness because they are those who are willing to stand for the testimony of Christ even unto death. And who are washed in the blood of the Lamb. The other people, those who are willing to compromise and worship false gods, whatever the form that may take, in order to benefit themselves. And ultimately, they will be cast in the lake of fire. What are you marked with today? What are you marked with? If those who know you best are looking at your life and your character and your beliefs, how are you, how are you marked What fruit is there in your life? If 
if you're looking at yourself and saying, my life is, is marked with ungodliness, I don't weep over sin, I love sexual immorality, I love to hate people, I love to worry. <laughs> I don't know if anybody really says they like to worry, but it's sure, it's sure better not to worry, isn't it? All, all of these things, if you're looking at your life and saying, well, I, I don't know how I'm marked today, let me encourage you with this. If you fly to Jesus, the Lamb, and confess your sins, you will not be turned away. You will not be cast out. And you know what the scriptures tell us? We're not just supposed to have faith once, you know, pray a prayer, walk an aisle. I believed in Jesus one time and I've got my fire insurance. No, we are to live by faith. The just shall live by faith. So we need to wake up every morning and say, I'm going to put my faith in the Lamb. I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. And I'm going to live out His testimony today before my neighbors, no matter what comes. And I'm going to be faithful to Him. And He is faithful. He is faithful and will give grace to overcome. Father, thank You for Jesus and that we can look at Him and the testimony of all of His ministry and we can see we can see how he is marked. The Holy Spirit upon him. Never compromising, declaring truth at all times. And I pray, Father, that you will grant us the grace and the strength to walk in righteousness for your name's sake. And to take encouragement and not live in fear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.